0: Hey everyone, this is Derek Stone, and you're listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping all working triathletes become the best they can be. What a weekend of racing. I mean, some awesome performances at Ironman Arizona from the pro fields, both on the men's side and the women's side, but also some of our athletes too. We had uh, one Kona qualifier, which is sweet and one on the edge, um, and another one I think we'll get there as well, but a great weekend overall. It's also worth mentioning Ben Knut smashes first Ironman too.
1: Yeah, that was uh, a great race by him. I mean, that might be his his distance, the Ironman. Um, obviously, he threw down at 70.3 distance, but he's, he's strong, and uh, obviously he has has been performing really really well. Um but uh yeah so he'll be there. So Joe Skipper won at Arizona pretty pretty handedly. I saw him cross the line and basically collapse, <laughs> but he ran 244 which is obviously very solid, but Matt Hansen man ran out of his mind. He ran Oh my gosh, a 235. Um it's kind of funny because we see Nike, you know, dominated the, uh, was the dominant shoe mm-hmm. for performance with their, like, you know, a couple of years ago, and then A6 kind of snuck in. And now we're seeing some some weird ones, like Under Armour taking the win in uh, the New York City Marathon, and then uh, Eden running an on, and then Matt Hansen running a 235, that's 553 pace in, in on shoes. So it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see.
0: Yeah, it looks like all the shoes are catching up now with the same technology. All the stack heights are getting pretty similar too.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And uh so I mean who else was in this race that was notable? Uh so obviously Joe Skipper won. Matt Hansen was second with an awesome run. So so they qualified obviously for Con Ben Canute. Uh and then other notable
0: So Ben actually qualified so, too. Up
1: three oh, okay, nice um and then sam long ended up getting 10th didn't have the best the best run uh from the beginning he was just kind of cruising pretty pretty easily he he ran a 314 so obviously that's uh below his potential uh but you know he he's been <laughs> dealing with a decent amount post 70.3 world champs uh after you know that unfortunate circumstance with the penalty um but uh it will be interesting to see how you know ben ben progresses obviously and i mean and matt hansen is is up there uh with with the best in the world i mean obviously but you know if he can just swim a little bit faster and bike a little bit faster he he's gonna be uh in a good spot in a good spot. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to the swim, the, the swim definitely it holds certain athletes back. Um, mm-hmm. So at the pro level, everybody's fast at everything and it's tough to, you know, bridge the gap. If you, you come out of the water far back, but we always love to root for, for those types of athletes who, who come from behind.
0: Oh yeah. Um,
1: but, uh, and then on, on the women's side, Sarah true taking the W with a, a Really impressive run. Um, I mean, an, an impressive race just in general. Uh, but it was good to see her her crushing it. Sky Munch and then uh, Danielle Lewis. So, you know, she went pro just a few years ago. Um, she's definitely an adult learned swimmer. I remember when she won uh, USAT nationals. Um, and I know she was the duathlon national champion, and then she won in, uh, maybe it was Cleveland and she won the, uh, uh, triathlon there as an amateur and then went pro a few years ago, but, um, she has improved a lot. So I remember when she was swimming like two minutes per hundred and then she swam, you know, 60 minutes, 48 seconds at Arizona, which really isn't fast for a pro, but it's, it's within striking distance. If you're a good cyclist runner and you know, she is, I know she got a flat, uh, but she ended up running a 252. <laughs> yeah, super fast. That's crazy. So, yeah, Sarah, too, Sky Munch, and then uh, Danielle Lewis rounding out the podium. And then after that, uh, you know, there was a, you know, there continued to be a drop-off in time, but, um, you know, those women were, without the penalty, you know, Sarah, Sky, and Danielle would have been really close together and it would have been interesting or not the penalty without the the flat rather um danielle danielle's flat so uh it was pretty interesting interesting weekend um and i know at arizona uh one working triathlete well she qualified for kona and alex landry coaches her so uh i haven't heard whether she's taken the slot or not but we'll see um, so it was a good, it was a good weekend, solid weekend. Um, but the, uh, I mean, next year it's our team race. Are you racing Arizona?
0: It, it's all, it's all negotiations with the wife right now, and how our, <laughs> how the family expands. But uh, I think I can pull it off, and uh, it would be. I, I do want to do another Ironman, and it's the right one to do. I think uh, it's a good time of year for the most part, and if there's other athletes doing it that we work with. And we surround ourselves with, it will be a lot of fun. So to be determined at this point, but, uh, if I can get a couple long rides in next summer, I'll be pretty confident. I'll knock it out
1: (laughs) (laughs) a couple, just a couple long rides. That's all you need to to do an Ironman. Well, yeah. Um,
0: but yeah, I think it'll be a lot of fun to get, get out there. The, the atmosphere there looks pretty cool. Um, I do. It it looks a little interesting, a little chaotic. I I remember watching the the pro race briefly yesterday and seeing the pros weave in and out of the age group athletes because it's a three loop course. So Mm -hmm. that looks a little hectic, but um, it's kind of neat, though, because it breaks up the race a little bit, too. Yeah, I mean,
1: the course is not particularly scenic at Ironman, Arizona, Uh, the bike course I'm talking about, but I'm never looking around at the scenery anyway when I'm racing, Um, but it does, it can get congested for sure on the, on that third loop, especially. Um, But yeah, I mean, it does, it's nice to sort of have the ability to, to measure your, your effort via a a way that, that isn't just looking at the time. It's just Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm one third done and okay, I have to go up this. You know th- this long false flat into the headwind, just just one more time after this or something. So you know that's nice mentally breaking it up like that. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. You could see the splits. I was following along yesterday, and you could see where people were into the headwind, into the hill, and then when they had the tailwind because there's a huge difference between the paces.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was like a ten mile per hour difference when mm-hmm. I did it uh, between me going up <laughs> and out and then coming back. It's, oh man. Uh, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of wind, but overall, I think clearly it, it can be a fast course, especially if, if there isn't that much wind, the run is, is pretty flat and it's, it's nice just around Tempe Lake and, and on that greenway. So we're excited for that to be one of our team races next year.
0: And I know you've done it in the past and I believe you're going to do it next year too, as well, right?
1: Probably. I haven't signed up for it. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think you can sign up for it yet, but that is a potential, uh, race right now. I'm leaning towards doing it. Uh, but I've also been thinking about Florida. Th- that is always the question. It's like when I, when I discuss athletes who want to do fall Ironmans, I mean, it's well, the three big ones that, you know, we often target Chattanooga or Florida or Arizona. And, you know, our team race is is Arizona. So we'll have, you know, We'll see. I mean, probably a couple dozen athletes doing it, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but Florida is also interesting because you know, we can drive to it, right? And that might give you know give us the opportunity to scream, yell, and cheer at at the athletes um, rather than uh, you know race. But you know, it's also the case that when we finish, we can you know cheer on a lot of the athletes too, and and there's something to be said for uh, for doing it also but um we'll we'll see uh chattanooga is is interesting just because it's like two hours away (laughs) so close and i don't like flying with the bike anymore after the fiasco that was flying back from kona with the bike that uh put a bad taste in my mouth so you know southwest is is one of my least favorite airlines at this point for (laughs) various reasons uh I, I flew up to, to Pennsylvania from Nashville. My wife and I went up and visited family. I'm from Pennsylvania and we take this allegiant flight from from Nashville up to Allentown and back. It's a direct flight and it, it it costs like 40 bucks each way. It's uh it's pretty absurd. And it's you know, it hasn't got I haven't experienced a delay or anything and I'm I'm leaning towards just branching out from southwest. Um they have not been reliable.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of cancellations lately. I mean, I think it's true for a lot of airlines. Um, I've flown to Allegiant once or twice when I lived in Toledo, and it's like the budget airline, but they were efficient then. I'd imagine they're efficient now too.
1: <laughs> they're fine. It's not like it's luxurious or anything, but it works. Um, it gets you there quickly. So that's all you need. Yep. But, uh, you know, another exciting announcement that uh, Working Triathlete made was we are uh, sort of officially starting an elite slash pro team. Um, You know, we had a few athletes are, are, you know, turning pro next year. And uh, many of them are are looking to sort of, we're we're speaking to, we're trying to basically get a crew in, in Nashville to train together, you know, a, a team of pros and people looking to make the jump from age group to pro and we're going to, uh, do it, do it right. I mean, in, in the United States, there aren't that many, uh, sort of teams or, or, uh, squads wherein professional triathletes are, are working out together every day. And aiming to to get better together obviously there are run teams Mm -hmm. Uh, Bowerman uh, Bowerman and you have Hanson Brooks and that that sort of style is prevalent in 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 running where it's just sort of like the elite development squads and in triathlon that, that that does not really exist which you know, it's that always was interesting to me. I mean, it is the case that, for example, you know, in Boulder, there are a bunch of pros who work out together sort of informally. But, uh, you know, our goal is to kind of pool resources and um do train at a high level, integrate science. So we're we're the Working Track Athlete Global Headquarters is is leasing space at a performance lab, and we will have the ability to to do lab testing. And we have developed partnerships with uh, different different brands. The most recent being Kintanaru. So we are uh, really looking to uh, create a team that a team of athletes who are going all in and and looking to. Reach their true, true potential in in triathlon, you know, to see how good they can be. Cause there is this finite window of time where you can reach your genetic potential, your ultimate sort of lifetime genetic potential in triathlon. And a lot of athletes are trying to kind of do that alone or solo. And it helps to have that, uh, that team around you, you know, the team of athletes trying to do it, but also a team of coaches, a team of fitness professionals, like, you know, physical therapists. Um, you know, nutritionists, et cetera, we're, we're really aiming to dial in everything and leave no stone unturned. And, uh, those applications are open. Um, so, you know, definitely navigate, uh, over to our Instagram page. The link is, is there and, you know, click there. If, if you, uh, want to apply and and the standards are high and when i say the standards are high I, I mean you have to have your pro card or have qualified for it um so this isn't like an elite team like you know the various sort of elite squads which out there which really mean like just pretty good age groupers um this is like a pro pro squad and we're excited about it uh interest is, is really high we've received uh i'd very substantial number of applications, like a high number of applications already. So we're we're pumped for it. And uh, we're excited to see some uh, incredible performances next year in 2023 from our, our pro squad.
0: Yeah, I'll say w- one thing, and I think anyone can relate to this. You know, we all grew up going to school on sports teams with teammates. And, you know, a lot of people are surrounding us. And like, like you mentioned, that's just not the case in triathlon. Maybe it is for, you know, short course racing a little bit more, but once you get to the long course racing, it's not that common. And when you think about getting together with people, the group effect is real. It, you know, it drives people to push the effort to do do more and, and really just to be focused too, because, you know, if you're doing stuff by yourself, it's easy to lose focus. Um, it's easy to kind of throw the towel early if, if you're in a workout it's difficult but if you're working with, with other teammates there's just more motivation and the opportunity to work hard is always going to be there um, and when i say work out I, I don't mean going out and doing stuff hard every single day because there's obviously an element of, of recovery too but smart training um, is obviously going to be a big part of that
1: exactly and you know it- it isn't like you said necessarily even just the group training i mean there's the nutrition and recovery piece of it and we're just aiming to create a culture of of excellence where athletes are inspired to to dial everything in and live like champions um and you know obviously we're starting this this pro squad but, but that doesn't mean that you know our a main focus is, isn't the uh the age group racers because our goal is to have athletes you know be inspired by the pro squad and for them to, you know, show up for the same group workouts. I mean, this isn't just like there are two separate teams now or that, you know, they're, they're the pros are necessarily getting uber special treatment. The idea is that it's, it's, we are aligning with sponsors to, you know, provide some gear and, and, and things like that for the, uh, uh, the pro squad just because that, that that's those billboards are, are more valuable from a investment perspective. But, you know, the idea is, is for everybody to, uh, sort of become inspired and also contribute to, uh, the success of, of the pro team, just as the pro team will contribute to the success of the, uh, uh, just the age group squad. Um, so ultimately it's, we're just, again, Creating a culture where everybody wants to become better Mm -hmm. and we're we're pumped
0: Speaking of the group model. I mean you look at the Norwegians, which may be only two people However, there is a team behind them They are working together to maximize performance But not only are they just working together they are doing everything in their power to maximize performance from every daily habit to sleeping and recovery, obviously training and everything in between.
1: Exactly. And obviously Christian and, and Gustav, they are uh, receiving a lot of attention and, and and they've been on you know, a couple really big podcasts. They were on Rich Roll and then they were on the, the How They Train podcast. So they're sort of pulling back the curtain a little bit. On on how they they train and and it's it's interesting. I mean, I recommend that you go and listen to all of those podcasts. Um, I think they're they're pretty darn good. But I mean, ultimately, they're not doing anything <laughs> crazy. Like genuinely, um, they're everything is dialed in. And but you know, tying it to the sort of that team effort that we just talked about, it's they, they train together and that helps tremendously but when we think about what what they're doing it's their their uh their coach uh boo he he basically explained how it's you know it's it's a volume kind of driven plan and the way that they approach uh you know training for the olympic distance versus ironman or or long course racing which is which i really the latter is is kind of where they i think really increased uh you know in popularity Mm -hmm. just because they've been tearing it up in the long course field like there wasn't that much attention on them when they're racing the olympic distance because i think they're just better at long course racing but um they aren't doing anything outlandish but what they are doing is is really uh, one thing that was interesting was this concept of of back casting so there for kona for example they they figure out what the demands are going to be on on race day, and then they they kind of train to that. Um, or kind of said differently, they they're not necessarily just uh, trying to increase VO2 max or increase threshold or 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 anything like that. They're, they're they're training in a manner that you know is is going to enable them to maximize performance on, on race day. So for the Ironman distance, you might see a decrease in VO2 max, or you will. If you're optimized for, for Ironman racing, um, so they, they really focus on specificity, especially as the race approaches, and they uh that includes in specificity of intensity and duration, and that is especially uh visible in their kind of their key sessions. Um, and basically, he talks about how they just like I think any good plan or, or any coach would, uh, uh, create a plan to, to reflect is they, they train in a manner that enables them to, to nail the key sessions and then get in as much volume basically as, as they can kind of in between. And then, uh, but if they're, if they need to scale something due to burnout, they'll scale like the supporting sessions in between. So, you know, it isn't like they're rewriting training methodologies, but they are doing some things um, that they're emphasizing certain principles, I think more than, than other, uh, athletes are or coaches are.
0: Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that they, they train specifically for the race. And one thing I'd noted is they are taking shorter recovery too. If they're doing like a, like, let's say they're doing a four hour ride to mirror the demands of an Ironman bike split, uh, they're not going out there and doing, you know, th- three intervals with a long break in between they're trying to get as close as possible to that Ironman effort level and just a brief effort or brief recovery between to, uh, allow their bodies to recoup, but not so much that it wouldn't mirror it in a race because they want to get as close as they can to the race. You know, maybe sometimes even two days in a row, like they, you know, they might do a bike one day and then a run the next day. And then they're doing the run, you know, the same way, trying to get as close as they can to the Ironman effort.
1: Yeah. And and that gets at that as the race approaches, you need to kind of, the plan has to be really race specific. You have to build efficiency at race pace and and the body gets better at at what it does. So you have to do, (laughs) do what you're going to have to do on race day. So, so you, you get better at it. Now there's definitely nuance to all this and, and basically they went to sort of depth on specifically on their Kona build. So we don't necessarily, the detail that they covered was say, you know, the, the few months going into Kona, not going like, like we didn't get a great glimpse into say off season training mm-hmm. or, you know, that maybe the annual cycle rationale or, or anything like that. And, um, but in general, I don't think there was anything particularly surprising. Um, you know, it was just general, good foundational principles of, of endurance training that they they adhere to. And I will say that they train a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and a lot, a lot of these principles that they, uh, that they talk about, you know, it's particularly applicable for high volume athletes, i.e. professionals, um, and we think about things like, you know, the, the lactate tracking. Uh, it is it is the case that you can glean a lot of great insight from that, uh, but probably less insight than, than you think, especially if you are a typical sort of age group triathlete training, you know, 10 to 15 hours per week. Uh, so it was interesting hearing Boo kind of talk about the uh how they utilize the the lactate monitors um and basically is just sort of part they're not using it for real-time intensity control which i think a lot of people think that they're doing just because the it's tough to get a precise reading on the lactic concentration w- with that uh specifically for applying it to modulating intensity in real time like like the they know what pace Threshold is. <laughs> you know, they, they know that. And, and basically they, they it is the case that they don't actually really train in a polarized manner. Uh they just spend a lot of time right around threshold. And and I think a lot of people I, I think it probably is the case that the Norwegians do this, where you know, they're doing the double and the triple threshold workouts each day on certain key days, and, and that got a lot of coverage. Um and I mean, the truth is you just, you have to be at or under, really under threshold. Uh, if you're going to do that consistently, otherwise you will burn out. So it's really important for them to dial in their, uh, their intensity so that they don't just burn out. Because if they are spend time above that, whatever critical power or, or their uh, um, like max lactate steady state, they, they will they're just depleting that 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 battery and, and they're going to need more recovery. Um, and they're just not going to have the ability to maintain as high a load just because of the outcome of of going spending time above threshold. Um, but, uh, you know, it's they, they also have a big emphasis on on kind of tracking calories and, and calorie burn, which is particularly important when you're training at the load they are which is they're burning absurd (laughs) numbers of calories. So, so, so they uh, often view training in a, in a sort of kilojoule burned manner, which is super relevant. uh, You know, if, especially if you're training 35 hours a week, you know, we think about for age groupers, what's the application of, of doing, of, you know, using a lactate monitor or, you know, having this approach for, for athletes training 10 hours a week. It's like, there are certain principles to apply, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to nail the the basic basic fundamentals first before you you start going not crazy, but before an age grouper who's training ten hours a week week starts, you know, training with a lactate mo- monitor at the track or at the yeah. pool. Um, it's like let's let's nail the fundamentals first, but certainly uh, more data is is often good if you know how to parse through it and and apply it. And, you know, when it comes to them using the lactate monitor, my understanding basically is, is that they're kind of using it as another data point and looking at how, what those levels are kind of over time, how is, you know, VT1 or LT1 progressing over, over time. Like if you're doing an Ironman, you need to burn fewer carbohydrates compared to fat at a given pace. Ironman pace is right around LT1 and that is they want to be really efficient there and they want to move LT1 sort of up the I guess the power curve so to speak so that you know they they put out more power at and still you know burn say you know 50% carbs 50% fat at 300 watts whereas you know maybe earlier in the in a build or something it, They might be burning, you know, eighty percent carbs, twenty percent fat at three hundred watts or something. And I'm just pulling these numbers out of thin air, but uh, the concept is just to get more efficient like that. So, so you know, basically, they're using the lactate monitor to, I think, in a more long, with an eye towards the long term tracking benefits of it.
0: Yeah, I think another thing worth noting too is they're deliberate about recovery and feeling so. They are ensuring they are getting enough nutrients after workouts to, to properly be ready for the the following day. And I think this is something and sleep as well. So when I think about a lot of age group athletes and, you know, when, if they feel tired or, or something like that, you know, it's peeling back the layers of what can you control? And if you can control recovery, uh, and when I say recovery, I mean, sleep is a huge thing and your nutrition. Um, and ensuring you're getting enough calories because I know there's the, it's, it's easy to under eat. And a lot, I think a lot of people underthink that. And I had an athlete last year that was having some issues. And when we looked at what he was burning each day versus what he was consuming and turned out that he was just not taking enough calories in and, um, they are pretty deliberate with that. And I think a lot of age group athletes can take that and, uh, apply that too
1: exactly i mean nutrition is a massive piece of the puzzle and a, very few people i think dial it in as well as they they can or should but nutrition and body comp all of all of these things matter um and it's all sort of a piece of the puzzle and and in my opinion nutrition and recovery is is fundamental like it's it's one of the pillars of training just as important as the actual training is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it is important to, to, to dial everything in and, uh, and make sure that you're, you're recovering well and, and not leaving that sort of a chance. I mean, alcohol, jeopardizing sleep, all of these things are gonna hold you back. Um, and what's clear is that the best in the world take these things very, very seriously, because um, because it matters. Um, but and, and these things won't just help you in training. I mean, eating right, hydrating, recovering well, getting enough sleep is going to help you in your career. You know, at work, it's going to help you be present and more productive throughout the day. And you're just going to enjoy life more if you're healthy <laughs> and not just flogging yourself in training and then uh recovering in 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 a stupid way in a stupid manner um so di- certainly dial dial all that in um but uh yeah i mean but hearkening back to you know how elites are training now i think one kind of a, like a recent development is is less of an emphasis and i alluded to this earlier less of an emphasis on on polarized training, you know, we're seeing a a large number of athletes who are making their kind of their training, uh, elite athletes making their training logs public. Uh, What we're finding is is a lot, there's a lot more probably tempo work done Mm -hmm. than might have seemed back, (laughs) say, five years ago when polarized training, in the definition I previously described in this podcast, was all the rage. Um, but what's clear is that, you know, the Norwegians and athletes like Kipchoge, uh, they, their bread and butter, their, their, I should say their meat and potato sort of intensity work is it's tempo work. Um, you know, so, so right around that. So above, obviously above LT1 sort of up, you know, closer in that uh, say upper heavy domain or. Call it like sweet spot stuff, or, or even right around threshold, um, but they're accruing a lot of volume, say around that 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 threshold. And and I, the the language that you use, the definitions are, are different, but you know, threshold being just call it like ten k at a half marathon pace, mm-hmm. um, so or you know, kind of sweet spot on the bike, um, and we're just finding that that's a very productive zone to train and not that again, not that that is new information. It's just, I have a feeling that the, uh, the trend that we're going to see, uh, amongst a lot of athletes is, is just more of a, a movement towards this type of training rather than, you know, super hyper hyper polarized training. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's exciting that, you know, we're, we're getting better glimpses into how many, what many different coaches are doing, many different athletes are doing. It isn't like hidden knowledge anymore with coaches holding, you know, their specific methodology close to their chest or or doing secret training, a lot of it is public mm-hmm. on Strava. And I think this, this sort of group think, it's almost like a wider, it's like a global push towards figuring out what is the best way to train for Olympic distance? What is the best way to train for 70.3 or Ironman distance racing? You know, we know what the best athletes are doing with, with you know, a fair amount of precision. And, you know, the coaches have the ability to kind of take certain principles from maybe other coaches apply them to athletes and i mean athletes are all different also so you know somebody might one athlete might demand a different you know way of training to reach their potential than than another or they might have to train in a different way to optimize performance at a a specific distance than another um but you know it's it's an exciting time just because of social media (laughs) and and podcasts i mean we get glimpses into uh the, maybe the minds of, you know, great exercise scientists and, uh, and coaches and, and athletes. So, um, it's, it's an exciting time for sure.
0: Yeah. My dad asked me a couple of weeks ago, if I thought people are withholding information. And I said, if anyone's withholding information, it's because they're doping. You know, at the end of the day, most people are, are definitely pretty open. Like you mentioned, you can see what everyone's doing on Strava. Uh, research is being posted. Uh, another thing too, is to consider, and everyone does respond a little bit different to different stimuluses, but if an athlete believes in their training program, that's going to be pretty valuable too. And if you have an athlete and you're doing everything right, but they don't trust the process that that could negative, that could impact their performance in a negative way.
1: Right, exactly. And, and one good thing is that you know the science now we're we're sort of able to to really get in and in a kind of a nitty-gritty manner and identify you know based on something like a power curve or you know what what percentage of of critical power or what percentage of VO2 max is one's say critical power that you can look at that and you can kind of know okay well this athlete is lacking in in this in this range. So, so this athlete might need to de- do, you know, a little bit more, spend a little bit more time on uh, threshold work or, uh, you know, th- this athlete needs to develop just aerobically a, a little bit more. And then, you know, you could tweak training to, to that. So, and, and that's kind of the advantage of, of lab testing fairly frequently. You know, you, you can really measure, uh, just like kind of metabolic changes or, or how the athletes are, or, or burning fuel at different intensities. And and you can take this information and, and kind of tailor it to the athlete. And, and you can also do this in, in testing. Like if an athlete, uh, is able to, you know, hold a really high percentage of their VO two max for a long period of time, it's like, okay, they're, they're pretty darn fit. And they're kind of ready to, you know, crush, a a, a you know, like a, an Olympic distance triathlon say, um, you know, but maybe that athlete you know, is not ready. It's like maybe their ceiling, say their VO two ceiling ceiling, or say five minute peak power isn't that great, and you know they're a cyclist and they need to uh, develop that. Like we we know that now. It's pretty easy for everybody to to I, to understand where their uh, you know different dimensions of. Fitness, where they, they, what might be holding them back, or what they can develop more, um, et cetera. So, uh, it's it's knowing what you know the best athletes in the world are doing, and then understanding the science behind it, and how to to tweak tweak the plans. But, um, you know, I think what we are finding is that it there aren't any radical approaches that are successful. Like nobody's doing Tabata seven times a week and crushing it at Ironman, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, nobody is training six hours a week and, and, and break in nine hours in the Ironman. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there are certain kind of universal principles that, you know, we should apply, but um, I think it's, it's much easier nowadays for uh, sort of people all over the world to, really understand in a scientific manner kind of where their fitness is and what they need to do to to improve it specifically for specific races um you know kind of gone are the days where the best athletes are just kind of going out and doing you know flagging themselves on on the track and then uh just run, doing really hard track sessions and then just trying to run as much as possible. And, and, and that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. It's like, they're, they're spending more time at very specific intensity zones. They understand where their fitness is lacking and they're, they're training to that.
0: If someone's training at the goal race effort for long periods of time, there's no surprise of what they can manage either. Obviously when you're looking at pro athletes, they have the time to, 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 Really log those hours. You know, if they're doing a four-hour ride, you know, near their race pace effort, there's there's no surprise there. But that same principle goes to to age group athletes too, because you know, I'm sure everyone has talked to an athlete and they question what they're able to do, or they might overthink it a little bit. And when you look at their training, they may may not be doing anything at their goal pace or or whatever they're trying to accomplish. And mm-hmm. so when you're training at the efforts that are required to hit the goals you want, uh, there's no surprise there.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You know, I mean, it, it, we also have to bring in the volume component of all this too. It's like the specificity for, for racing, especially long course racing is really important. Um, but you know, part of that specificity is long training days. So that, that specificity is how you get to the pointy, pointy, pointy end for sure. And then we look at athletes training eight hours a week and, you know, we were just kind of talking about, you know, more hyperpolarized training or, or whatever. And, you know, it might be the case that in certain instances, athletes are going to spend a lot of time, you know, well above race pace and below it. And that might be the most efficient way for them to train. But that is certainly not not ideal. Um, but uh, you know, everybody's different. <laughs> and it also depends on, you know, how long has an athlete been in the sport and and what is their long-term base, because that could govern how training looks for a macro cycle as well. Um so yeah, there's there's a lot, a lot there. And and but but what's clear is that you know the uh the best athletes In the world and the best athletes and working on working triathlete they they, their load is higher than everybody else's Mm -hmm. and and one thing we shouldn't forget to mention is that is also related to like talent like durability is is part of a requirement for really becoming A pro, like it is very hard to become a pro if if you're not generally durable, or biomechanically efficient, or biomechanically, uh, you you, you, they typically move in a way that is not going to cause them to be injured all the time. Um, So the ability to withstand a high training load is not only is it related to nutrition and recovery, it's also just related on your body is just foundational ability to recover (laughs) and and that 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 does have a certain genetic component to it but almost nobody has really optimized nutrition and recovery to you know the highest level um so it's important to consider that but uh you know that's part of the talent that it takes for one to be good but you know having said that i should bring up uh the the women's ncaa cross-country championships from uh national championships from this past weekend because a lot of athletes you know on the slack channel are working to athlete slack channel you know people were chatting about it and and Mm -hmm. brian he brought up uh the the fact that she trained she cross-trained a lot parker valby did so parker valby was she she like broke a bunch of records this year she runs for florida she she got a lot of attention because she threw down some absurd times. Like she broke course records by dozens and dozens of seconds. Like in a six K she, she like broke, she went through the five K and I forget what it was exactly 15, 20 something, which was dozens of seconds faster than the five K course record there. And then she closed that last K in like three minutes. So it, it looked like she might've been, a lot of people were saying that her fitness was, she might've been the fittest female cross country runner ever at, at the NCA level, just based on the time she was throwing down and her dominating performance. But then you had Caitlin Tui who beat her at the five K last year on the track and also didn't lose a race this year. And, and it was looking strong and wasn't necessarily challenged. So people were like, okay, well who's going to win. And then this past weekend, Parker went out really, really fast, had a huge lead kind of halfway through. Um, and then Caitlin Tui ended up catching her at the end, basically in the last kilometer. Uh, and, you know, part of that might have been that Parker went out too hard. But I mean, so Tui ran a, a better race. But anyway, the, the whole point of bringing this up was uh, that I thought it was interesting how Parker trained. So Chris Linsky is her coach. And he talked about how you know she was only running three to four times per week, 20 to 25 mi- miles in total per week. And then everything else was, was cross-training. And, and my understanding is that most of that cross-training was on the elliptical uh, and similar machines. And that was sufficient <laughs> sort of specificity that she's able to be one of the best runners in the NCAA. Um, but yeah, you know, I know she was sort of racking up pretty substantial volume on that elliptical. Her, you know, two hours was a pretty typical two hours per day of, of elliptical training was a pretty standard approach. But, you know, I'm not I don't coach her. I don't have remarkable insight at all into how that's structured. But we do know that she integrated cross training a lot. And uh, it, it's, it's pretty amazing and interesting, especially as triathletes to consider how, you know, what the crossover benefit is swim swim bike to run i think there's very little swim to bike and swim to run i know there is very little because that's what the studies show but there is solid crossover benefit bike to to run we know that there's a decent amount there and certainly elliptical to run there's almost certainly even more uh so so if you're injured or something don't don't uh get down on yourself it's possible to to run really well off of off some good cross training, um, at least at the 6k distance, right? Cause correct. <laughs>
0: yeah. You can't really cheat in a marathon distance. And yeah, I think you could go even go up to a half marathon on lower run volume if you are cross training and, and do well. Uh, but if you are stepping up to like the long, long races, like a marathon, for example, you definitely need that volume underneath your belt. But, um, I, I also know someone from college that, spent a lot of time on the elliptical and very similar situation. They were, they, they tended to get injured easily, uh, but they were a phenomenal miler. You know, they, they went low fours or maybe even sub four, you know, back in, you know, early two thousands, which was good back then. Now it's pretty common for people to break four, but um, you know, cross training can help, especially for those shorter distances for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you're developing mitochondria and, and, all of all of that function, it's there's something to be said for specificity, for sure. Um, you know, I remember was a one study. I'm trying to remember like how how it was structured, but you know, they trained one leg <laughs> in some aerobic way. I forget if it was it was cycling one and only using one leg, or, or what it was, or squats like a bunch of squats. But uh, the adaptations occurred only in one side. And in that leg. <laughs> it didn't occur on the <laughs> other leg. So they had this tremendous muscle imbalance, not, not only muscle imbalance, like strength imbalance, but also just uh the, the mitochondria health just wasn't wasn't there. So so they couldn't the other leg could not take oxygen, you know, combine it and, and create ATP and 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 use that uh to to do work. It was just weaker across the board, just strength wise and just aerobically. So and that's why I, there isn't tremendous crossover benefit swimming to running or swimming to cycling for, say, even slightly developed athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not fit, anything you do is going to help you do anything else that requires fitness. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> um, so that's step one. I'm talking about you know somebody's you know, top twenty five percent in a in an Ironman or something. They uh, you could swim. 50,000 yards a week, but that doesn't necessarily mean your run is going to improve at all above, above baseline.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, now for
1: good. an Ironman or for a triathlon, you know, maybe you'll run better if you have that swim fitness, that's, that's for sure. So I'm not trying to shit on swimming. It's incredibly important. And, and that's, what's holding, you know, some really, really good triathletes back, especially at the pro level. Um, we know obviously who, who they are, but, um, they're, they're working on it and, you know, we'll see uh 2023 i'm excited to see i mean what's clear is that the performance of the pros are it's improving across the board mm-hmm. on the men's and the women's side it's it's everybody is throwing down and is uh it's it's an exciting time
0: yeah it's getting tighter the 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 gaps are getting tighter which is cool you know in the past you used to see big gaps that at these long course races and it wasn't really a race per se you know it was more like who could hang on the longest but now now it's a battle all the way to the finish line it is and the
1: best athletes they don't really have have weaknesses anymore but uh you know one interesting uh takeaway that boo said on the on the, i think the how we train podcast he thought that you know christian and 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 uh gustav they they potentially could have gone 10 to 15 minutes faster at kona uh you know if they had a more more of a a race specific build but he specifically brought up uh cuz i think they went really quickly from one PTO race to, to Kona, they didn't have that much time to do mm-hmm. super specific training. But he talked about how, you know, the sort of this, the decay in performance from, you know, say the open 10 K in, in a track race to the, for a pro to the open 10 K in an Olympic distance race, the decay isn't that great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the decay in the swim and bike, as you go up distance from sprint to Olympic to, long course isn't that great. But when you go up to the marathon, there's all of a sudden this massive difference in this, this, this big decay. And, uh, you know, I think it's still open to some debate why athletes run the Ironman marathon slow. I mean, it's probably some metabolic limitation. I think it's probably psychobiological more than anything. Uh, a marathon is a very long, <laughs> long race. And you, you, you can't you just kind of have to tap into a calm mind and, and it could be daunting running really, really fast from the get go uh, in the marathon during an during an Ironman for, you know, top athlete even. But uh, it's also possible that, you know, I think he kind of alluded to this is that there's just room to develop the run more mm-hmm. long course Ironman racers um, at the at the tip top tip top level to he basically thinks athletes can run really i think faster i i think that's what he he's he's thinking or saying i don't want to put words into his mouth at all it's just sort of uh when we think about it it, it kind of makes sense because we've seen a, a pronounced drop in marathon times for professional ironman athletes over the last couple of years possibly attributable to well definitely attributable <laughs> to the to the shoes carbon plated uh shoes but, um, also I think everybody's just fitter and they're training in a, in a more, uh, optimal
0: way. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, And when someone's fitter and they're on the race course for less time, you can obviously run faster too. You know, obviously we're looking at a big chunk of time, but you know, if everyone's, if you're really good at swimming and you're only in the water for 45 minutes versus an hour and 20 minutes, and on the bike for four hours versus six hours, um, you're just out there for less time, you know, and you can push, you know, the, the pace a little bit higher.
1: Yep. Absolutely. I mean, that's important. And I, I do not think we should discount the, the nutrition side of things, mm-hmm. but both in training and also in racing, I think athletes tend to be taking in a little bit more than they have, you know, say 10 years ago. Um, I think people dialed in the nutrition. I mean, we pay tremendous attention to that, you know, when it comes to the athletes we work with, it's, we obsess about the nutrition plan. We test different, uh, sort of protocols and training, especially on, you know, bigger days, key endurance sessions for, for long course athletes. And, uh, you know, we dial everything in, not, not just carbs and, and fluid consumption and sodium consumption, but also Caffeine consumption and, and and timing of all of this, so it's how you you know crush it. Um, and you know, I've specifically worked with athletes who have done Ironmans and have done very well on on really hyper low volume training. And again, I'm not a huge advocate of of low volume training for for Ironman distance. <laughs> Trust me. But sometimes you know, an athlete they have eight hours a week and they want to do an Ironman and it's possible to to do it and and to do it well, but you have to nail the tactics. You have to nail nutrition. And, but, um, you know, if you really practice that and dial it in, you can have a good, enjoyable day. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we shouldn't discount nutrition either.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I never want to go into a long race with, uh, fewer calories than, than you need.
1: Right. And uh, not uh, one sort of surprising thing that I heard, and, you know, maybe we can have an entire podcast on this, just this concept, but because there is uh, just the number of perspectives on on strength training Mm -hmm. for endurance athletes is absurd. And I don't, I honestly don't know, you know, what percentage of the influence of strength training in triathlon comes from, say, you know, strength coaches obviously trying to push it or, you know, from, from athletes just looking for an edge. And I'm i I'm a fan of strength training for, for many reasons, but, uh, it was interesting when, when Boo said that they, they don't really do strength training that much, if at all, um, or stretch stuff, <laughs> uh, unless there's like a clear need for it mm-hmm. or if, you know, they know for a fact that like, you know, addressing some, some issue would improve race performance. So I was just, I was kind of surprised when, when I heard that and, you know, obviously he said that, and I don't mean to oversimplify it and say that they don't strength train, but, um, it's almost like he sort of, uh, placed it on a, in a place of fairly low importance in their overall, overall plan. Um, Yeah.
0: I wonder, you know, if you get to a certain amount of volume where it's just more difficult to recover from, you know, or, you know, I guess there's we could go a lot of different directions with this, but if they're training at that high of volume, it's, is it going to decrease the the ability to recover from the other workouts? Or are they just that strong because of the volume and mm-hmm. the strength's not necessary? And if someone's doing low volume, you know, obviously the strength's going to be more important because they're not putting in the, the volume to to build the strength.
1: Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it, honestly, has to do with, you know, Gustav and and Christian, they were kind of the survivors of the uh, sort of the Norwegian not experiment. but you know, it, it's it goes back to what I talked about earlier about sort of like biomechanics and just the propensity not to get get injured. like if one is durable, they it's just a good thing for for knocking out high load. You need to be durable to do so. And it is perhaps the case that just naturally they're, they're balanced and, and naturally strong. And it isn't maybe as essential for athletes like that to focus on strength training. Whereas, you know, older athletes I work with, it's, it's not really negotiable mm-hmm. and certainly in the off season, almost everybody, well, I, I, everybody who, who I coach, <laughs> we focus on strength and, uh, and we see some you know good, I, I think there's a lot of benefit to it for, for certainly most athletes, um but for younger athletes i do believe like without a shadow of a doubt that it's probably less essential um especially if those athletes are just generally balanced you know they don't have strength imbalances they don't have injuries they have good range of motions and good they can activate their muscles in you know good productive patterns and uh their form doesn't decay late into a race then Certainly the value of strength training, you know, absolutely is is lower than somebody who has all of these imbalances or, you know, they compensate, you know, with their quads or something when, when they run and don't activate their glutes and, and, uh, or they don't have, they lack stability say, and, and certainly if you lack stability and the ability to control your, your sort of the movement patterns of your body in a stable way, you're going to get injured. Mm-hmm. But if you can do all of that, then okay, you're training 35 hours a week, swim, bike, run. Where are you going to fit in the strength? What does that look like? And, and again, it's a question mark. It's like, everybody's an individual and, and maybe there's a seasonality to it, but um, all of this has to be considered. And it's kind of interesting to think about.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But uh, I know I'm going to hit the squat rack heavy this winter
0: (laughs) me too if i want to keep up with you on the bike (laughs) i
1: I know maybe we'll have a showdown this year the coach duel (laughs) at uh uh some
0: race yeah Um, that that would be fun
1: maybe north carolina i haven't decided if i'm gonna sign up for that oh you gotta do it well one issue was 70.3 north carolina is a little bit later in the year
0: it is a week or two
1: later yeah yeah it's like october 20 something Whereas I think it was the first week in October this year and mm-hmm. last year. Right. Yep. So, you know, if, if Arizona is is a target race, that's, it's not going to happen. I don't yeah. know, like racing three weeks before an Ironman. Um, I'm not a fan of doing that. You it want to must be in the race specific training.
0: They, they must be following the tide of the, like the, the moon to maximize the tide. <laughs> yeah,
1: Everybody will swim 10 minutes or something. Uh, We'll see. We'll see. But I don't know. Maybe. Uh. Maybe you'll come down to Music City or something for yeah. The, uh, Music City Olympic
0: June. Uh, yeah, June's wide open for me right now.
1: Yeah. There we go. Come down. That's a team race for us. We'll probably have forty or fifty athletes show up to that one. Oh yeah. So we we love that one right. Uh, in front of Titan Stadium, right at the riverfront in Nashville. It's a beautiful, uh, sort of race, a venue, and it's a fun race. It's an team awesome magic. race. So, yeah. be good well cool uh hopefully this was an interesting podcast for people you know i don't want to it's sort of difficult talking about like (laughs) trying to put together or assemble how people who you don't coach train and when everything is fed in in tidbits Mm -hmm. and not in a sort of textbook like logical manner but yeah, it was kind of interesting to, to look at what um, you know, one set of people are doing and, and, and looking at it and kind of translating it and, and thinking about it in light of uh, how most people should be training. Yeah. But it was cool. All right. Well, uh, if anybody wants to reach out to uh, Derek or me, feel free to email us at info at And
0: if you enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and subscribe make sure you leave us a review and share it with a friend. Have a good one.
1: See ya.